Welcome to Ag Credit Set It. In each episode, our hosts sit down with experts from all parts of the agriculture industry to bring you insights and must-have information on all things from farming to finances and everything in between. Welcome back, Ag Credit Senate listeners. We are back in studio with a great episode. I'm Phil, and Matt is my co-host today, and we are we are live in the WERT 12:20 a.m. studio in Van Wert. So excited to be here, Matt. How you doing? Doing good, Phil. And yes, a big thank you out to Chris Roberts and his team for allowing us to use this facility. It makes it sound a little more professional, you know. I mean, yep. we're we're in a legit studio here. Oh yeah, yeah. We've done this probably what two or three times now, and so yeah. So it's just nice to, to just come in here. just great working relationship with these guys. So Phil, even though this episode is going to drop uh, in July, crops are in the ground. Yep. You know, things are coming up, getting a little dry in Northwest Ohio, but you know, it's to be expected when planting season goes smooth. You know, you either have. A wet spring, you get slowed down, or a dry spring, and we're just uh, sitting waiting for rain. I actually had an older member stopping at the office the other day. uh, I'm trying to remember what he told me. He says, a wet spring will starve you to death. He said, a dry spring will just worry you to death. Mm. So some of the old man knowledge, I don't know if you really can get much out of that, but hey, it's one one thing to think about. I've been stretching, and I'm working on my rain dance routine, and it's just something I'm getting ready for because it feels like we're going to need it. We're going to need that rain dance. So that's that's why you had to go home early yesterday. It is, yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Practicing my rain dance routine. So Phil, why don't we get started and... uh, Let's introduce uh, yeah. who we got today. Yeah, so we have a special ag credit guest in today, Mr. Aaron Stoller. Aaron is the Director of Capital Markets and Agribusiness at Ag Credit. Aaron has been in ag lending for a while and has had the opportunity to work with all types of farm operations, small to big, as well as simple to complex. Since Aaron has been able to experience different farming operations, we asked him to come in, share his insights on what characteristics and attributes that make a successful farming operation. We're excited to have him with us and share his insights, experience with you, and and ventured through any other topic we come across. So excited to have him. So welcome, Aaron. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's a a privilege and honor to be here. Uh, Appreciate you having me. Yeah, so like we always like to do when we have someone on, jump in, uh, tell us about yourself, how you got started in lending, and get your background story a little bit. So, yep, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, my personal background: I grew up on a family farm uh, in Paulding, uh, Paulding, Ohio. The roots go pretty deep in my family. The farming roots go pretty deep in the family. My dad is a full-time farmer. Uh, my grandpa and my uncle—they were both full-time farmers. Three of them ran the business together. Grandpa and uncle have since passed, but uh, now it's uh, my dad and my brothers. I help out a little bit. We have some hired help on the farm. But when I was growing up, we had we had a thousand sows, uh, fair to finish hog operation, and uh, also a, a grain farm. And I know a thousand sows is really isn't much today, uh, but back in the nineties, that was enough to keep a couple of young boys busy on the farm. Oh yeah, here. yeah. It was fair to finish, so you learned to do everything. Uh, even the jobs you really don't want to do. <laughs> and at the time, I didn't know it, but looking back, it was an absolute blessing to grow up working alongside my brothers, uh, my grandfather, my uncle, my cousins. It's very special childhood memories growing up. I learned to drive tractor from my grandpa on an old international 1486 with a five bottom plow. Did that when I was pretty young. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember hauling hogs up to the old Lugville livestock uh, sale up in Archbishop. Oh, yeah. For those of you that that might ring a bell, that's that's long gone since then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all the joys, all the frustrations, all of the excitement, all the disappointments working in a family business, you know, that, that was my environment growing up. And 
And I will say, you know, growing up in that type of environment really helped prepare me for my landing career. It, it just allows me to understand the dynamics of a farm family as it relates to our customers. So mm-hmm. really appreciate, you know, that background and, and growing up. Still involved with the family farm today, uh, although we backed, uh, we backed out of hogs and folks focus mostly on the grain now. And, and Aaron, on your guys' family operation, correct me if I'm wrong, but a little bit of diversification going on, I guess. Uh, you know, um, you ventured into some other opportunities to, to kind of supplement the farm income a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it was um, that, that was kind of a, a journey. What what happened actually is my uncle had passed away early. It was a, it was a farming accident and wasn't on the radar screen. So, you know, after a year or so, it kind of passed by. It was it was clear that you know the 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 hogs were probably going to wind down and and that left an opportunity to replace with something else so actually my brothers my dad uh started a retail propane business that's been going on over 10 years now 10 11 years oh great yeah yeah that keeps him pretty busy in the off season farming and i just i just always imagine propane the hank hill you know Mm. i sell propane (laughs) and propane accessories (laughs) yeah So yeah, I, I'm yeah, obviously you're in lending. So tell us, tell us yeah. your lending journey. How did you go from you know family farm operation to, to your <clears> to where, where we're at now? Yeah. I guess yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you, it's not. It wasn't by design. Uh, and I'll tell you how I got started. Back when I was in college, there was a requirement to do an internship if you wanted to graduate. It, it was a requirement you had to do it. And I had actually I stumbled across a farm credit association up in New York, upstate New York. Okay. And what it was, it was a CEO from there was a Buckeye graduate. He liked to come back to Columbus every year to recruit Buckeyes to come work for him. So that summer, they offered me an internship. And I thought, well, if I want to graduate, I suppose I got to do something. But when I got up there and just started getting a taste of this agricultural lending space, Mm -hmm. that's where I say that the lending bug, I got bit by the lending bug. Mm. I don't know if people understand the Western New York area, the agriculture up there, but it's just incredibly diverse, tons of different ag industries up there. And I spent the whole summer that year just going around visiting farms that I knew nothing about. There's a lot of grape farms up there that uh, farmers there will raise Concord grapes that they'll crush for the juice jam and jelly. Learning about vineyards and grape farming was absolutely fascinating to me. We went around and visited a couple of apple orchards. And just learning the process, how they harvest it, and then how they preserve them over the off-season through these cold storage facilities it was amazing. I, re- I still remember I was doing a visit to a cold storage where the owner of the cold storage throws me an apple, and he says, here, eat it. I'm like, all right, I'll take a bite of it. He said, that apple has seen its, its birthday. That apple's over a year old. Wow. And I remember thinking, no way. Like, this literally feels, tastes like I just picked it off the tree. And, and understanding how that cold storage facility, it just brings temperature down, sucks all of the, the oxygen out of there, it, 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 the, the, the way it preserves the crop. The science behind that was just really fascinating to me. That cool. that is, that's very neat. Yeah. Got involved in some uh, greenhouse uh, nursery uh, operations up there, some retail garden centers. Okay. That was my introduction to dairy farming. And for hog farmer growing up, thinking hog farming was pretty hard work, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, dairy farmers take commitment to a whole new level. <laughs> Very much loved my time working with dairy farmers. I, I often say that I cut my lending teeth on dairy farms. Gotcha. So. And then there was just a bunch of other uh, operations, very large scale vegetable farms, onions, cabbage, peas, snap beans, 
there was some family-owned wineries back in the day. I mean, back then still are, but that was back when the wine trails really kind of got popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're really working with true family-owned wineries and just learning that process. And, you know, like I said, as a hog farmer from Corn County, Ohio, <laughs> yeah. uh, this was just fascinating to me. And I'll tell you that that's that was the summer, that was the year where I fell, fell head over heels in love with American agriculture. And as I think about this and the journey I've been on, and I look back at how I got into the business, I, I often say I did not choose this career. This career chose me. I was made to be an ag lender. And, and I'll tell you why. Because we, we have the privilege of working with the best group of people on the planet, the American farmer. They're the most resilient. They're the most hardworking, the most trustworthy group of people on the planet. I am convinced of it. And they're the backbone of this country, and it is an honor and a great privilege to be able to serve them. It's just, it's just, I feel blessed to have this opportunity to live out these passions in life. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and I, I will say, you know, for listeners out there that are considering a career in the ag finance world, I'll, I'll tell you this. In order to have a fulfilling career as an ag lender, it's, it's good to like numbers, but it's far better to have a passion for agriculture and a passion for helping others. And that's built with one farm, one family, and one relationship at a time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think even, you know, I can speak just for my shorter career in ag lending. It's it's building that relationship, but it's seeing that y- you almost feel like you become a part of that operation with, with the member. It's, it's, not a, it's not a cash and carry deal. This is, we're in it for the long haul and, you know, we hope to carry on to the next generation with that operation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So go back to my internship. The last day of my internship, my CEO takes me out for lunch. He says, Aaron, I got to tell you, this really wasn't a 12-week internship. And I'm thinking, well, I, I actually thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like that's it is what I said. Right. <laughs> he says, you're not understanding, Aaron, <laughs> which I wasn't. He said, Aaron, so this, this was a 12-week job interview is what this was. He said, uh, "He said you're going to go back to college. You're going to have all kinds of job offers. And I said, I'm, I'm going to make it real easy for you. He said, uh, you're going to come back and work for me, and we're going to do some great things. And I said, you know, that sounds pretty good. I think I like that. So my, my, actually, my very first year of in my career, my very first official year one as an ag lender was spent in the northeast part of the country, uh, mostly in Connecticut, where I was going through their loan officer training program. Hmm. And after that first year of training, I moved back to Western New York for my first official job as, as being a loan officer. So I was there for a few years and, um, and actually got contacted by a large national bank, um, actually right here in Van Wert. It gave me an opportunity to move back closer to, to family, closer to the family farm. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a logical step. You know, in hindsight, I was very thankful for the experience, even though it may not have been the best experience. Um, but it taught me really the importance of company culture. You know, some lessons you got to learn the hard way. Reminded me of the importance of being a mission-based lender. So I was with them for about uh, four years before I had what I call a smart attack, kind of smartened up, and <laughs> I had an opportunity to come back and be part of this great association here at AdCredit. So been, I think I've been with AdCredit now 14 years. I've been a lender for 20-plus. My first five years here with AdCredit was uh, working locally at the, the Van Wert branch, and then the last nine years uh, has been with the capital markets department. 
Gotcha. Yeah, probably has one of the coolest titles at Ag Credit, Director of, of Capital Markets yeah. and Agribusiness. This <laughs> is kind of a fun title. Yeah, titles so, are titles. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, just, <laughs> <laughs> so can, I, can you kind of walk us through, I guess, what, what, do, what do you do now in that department? Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. Speaking of titles, right? This is, you know, Agribusiness, Capital Markets, those, those words, uh, commercial banking, middle market banking, there, there's a lot of, a lot of words uh, that are used for this space and they all tend to be really vague, right? Like they're not super clear. They're not super well-defined as to what it is. Mm -hmm. So this is what I like to say is that if, if, if you cannot explain to my eight-year-old daughter what you do for a living in a way that she understands it, you're probably a fraud. <laughs> Never thought of <laughs> <Okay>. that. <laughs> okay. So, so keep it simple, right? I love keeping things simple. Simply put, agribusiness capital markets, we provide large businesses the money that they need to run their business. That's, that's what we do. Okay. Mm. Now, how we do that um, usually falls into one of three categories. We'll originate uh, loans or make loans. Uh, we'll buy loans and we'll sell loans. That's it. Originate, buy, sell. Those are uh, what I often refer to as the three legs of our three-legged stool within the department. That first leg, the originations, making a loan, that's what we often refer to as agribusiness. The process of buying and selling loans is what we uh, often call capital markets. So, you know, the third, the second and third legs are essentially done through uh, loan syndications, loan participations. You do that with master participation agreements and all kinds of stuff that we can kind of nerd out on. Gotcha. Uh, within uh, that space. But at its core, we, we do three things in this department. We make loans, we buy loans, and we sell loans. And I'll add this too, like I... I think it's important to know that loan making is not an event. It, it's a process, I mean, especially on the larger ones. Mm -hmm. To do lots of volume, borrowers and lenders need specialization. And, and that's really the purpose for, uh, for having this, you know, agribusiness capital markets. Okay. Division. Okay. So there's really two primary drivers within agribusiness capital markets, and they really involve size and complexity. You know, size is a relative term and it's loosely defined. But basically, when you need more than one bank or more than one lender to finance your operation, mm -hmm. that, that tends to, to uh, kind of fit the category of size. Okay. In the lending world, we call that concentration. So, you know, there, there comes a point in time where too much business with one particular customer will inherently bring on a different element of risk compared to just all the other risks that we normally have, mm -hmm. you know, and, and on this side of the desk. You know, even if it's a really, really good customer, too much of a good thing is still too much, right? Gotcha. And it's just simply good business and, and good discipline to limit the amount of capital exposure to any one loan or one uh, borrower. So in those instances, uh, you know, we'll reach out and engage our network of lending partners mm -hmm. and, and begin this process of, of selling loans. Um, and that's mostly to other farm credit associations or other farm credit funding banks. Okay. Um, and, and it's what allows us to tap into the, the capital markets, right, that allows us to provide our customers all the capital they need to run their business. And then conversely, when other lenders have their large borrowers that need additional financing, then we will look to buy into their loans as a way for us to diversify our risk and grow our portfolio. So, you know, buying loans is a great way to complement our primary line of business. Mm -hmm. I often say that God never made enough good ag lenders, so we're always on the lookout for good ones, and uh, <laughs> we treat our, our lending partners. It's a it's a special special relationship and a 
uh, we've got a very, very deep background with a lot of those. I was going to say, I, I, I could think that's just a, almost a job in itself. You know, you, you built the relationship with the member. Now you have to find and build that relationship with the next lending partner that you're going to be involved with on that. I got to think that's kind of has its own set of, uh, own set of problems there probably to work through. You know, when I realized that about, about two years into this position <laughs> <laughs> and I, I literally had the light bulb epiphany moment where I realized I, I spent many years of my career pursuing, engaging with customers and prospects and, and working for them and, and building rapport and relationship with them. The light bulb moment was realizing I take that exact same approach and now I've got to do that with all of our lending bank partners. Mm -hmm. So they, we, we literally, we, we will treat our bank partners uh, the same as we do customers and prospects and, and pursue them in that same way. Mm -hmm. it, it's important, you know, farming ain't what it used to be. Right. And a big farm ain't what it used to be. Yeah. Okay. And the really cool part about it is the farm credit system over the years has evolved to a point where they realize that we, we have a very unique offering to these, to, 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 to farmers. And when you get half a dozen or a dozen different lenders together on a deal that are all uh, pursuing the same thing with a customer, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty neat thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mentioned size as being one driver. The other driver is uh, really complexity. Complexity, again, is a relative term, but it generally a, a complex loan requires more controls or more reporting in order to monitor the performance, right? And that can sometimes be driven by the industry, sometimes can be driven by a, the type of customer. Some examples of a complex loan. These would be loans that require like a monthly borrowing base report. Mm -hmm where you know we would have to verify there's enough trading assets to support the amount that they're borrowing against you know say their operating line of credit loans that require uh, uh, different reporting like inventory reporting accounts receivable aging reporting or, or, or monthly financial reporting it allows us um, the ability to track year-to-date performance year-over-year -year comparison uh, year-to-date versus budget one more area of complexity is is probably focused primarily on loan covenants Okay. And again, keeping it simple, right? What's a loan covenant? I like to look at loan covenants simply as a tool used to measure risk within a business. That's all they are. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big college football guy, so I, I like to use sports analogies, right? So if you think of, think of a, a field of play where businesses operate in, right? 100 yards long, 53 yards wide. Uh, there's a field of play where everything's kind of free game, right? Loan covenants will mark the out-of-bounds territory, okay? Mm -hmm. Loan covenants will also serve as official that throws the flag, okay? It's important. Like, the businesses have a lot of freedom flexibility to run whatever play they want, whatever they think puts them in the best position to, to score. Right. Okay? But if a business commits a foul or if they go out of bounds, there's going to be a whistle blown. Uh, and the team's going to need to come back, huddle up, figure out, hey, what, what went sideways here? Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, loan covenant will blow the whistle when the ball goes out of bounds. It'll throw the flag when there's been a penalty. You know, if, if you ever listen to the uh, post-game press conferences of the head coaches, oftentimes you hear a lot of the same messages. Penalties and turnovers. Penalties and turnovers mm -hmm. have killed us. Mm -hmm. We shot ourselves in the foot. And it's a lack of discipline. So, 
Covenants are 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 used to help set the rules for the game so the game can be played sustainably and that everybody's got a chance for success. And and really it preserves the integrity of the business and the integrity of the, of the lending relationship and and just make sure that um, you know mostly the profits are being appropriately used to keep the business moving forward and uh, allows uh, they're able to capitalize on future growth. So that's that, that's a that's a big part of our day-to-day monitoring nice. measuring. Okay picking which ones to use. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of different ones to use. And, and I got to feel, you know, like you talked, uh, you know, agriculture. And I feel that we are probably one of the, f- I'd say the the f- most uh, fast, ad- fast advancing industries out there. I mean, I look at where we were at in production agriculture 10 years ago versus now. And as lenders trying to keep up with the evolvement of operations. So, when you look at uh, you know some of our characteristics and our controls we put in place, I'm sure those have had to adapt continually with these operations, Aaron. So yeah. I guess you know where do you see things going in the future when we look at you know some of the, some of this stuff? Yeah, I'm, you know, as a producer, it, really all we have to do is look upstream and see, or even look downstream and see that there's a much bigger process within agriculture, right? You know, so we look upstream. And, and we look at the inputs that we receive in the farm. Well, seed, fertilizer, chemicals. So those those all need to be manufactured and processed, right? You look downstream at the product after we sell it. Our commodities are handled, uh, processed by co-ops, elevators, feed mills, ethanol plants, mm-hmm. livestock uh, integrators. You know, all of these businesses are absolutely crucial to the ag industry, and and they need capital just like um, just like we do as as farm producers. The industry has changed, but tell me what industry out there hasn't mm-hmm. right in the right. last yeah. 20, 30 mm-hmm. decades. Yeah. I, I hear the comment all the time, oh, you know, farming ain't what it used to be. It's, it's kind of this, uh, this picturesque, uh, you know, the old red barn with some chickens. We're, we're not the guy some, with the pitchfork standing out in front of the farmhouse uh, anymore. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think people would just be utterly blown away, fascinated with what I would call cutting edge uh, farming mm-hmm. agriculture these days. It, it, it would go toe to toe with any industry out there. Um, and it's, again, guys, it's, we have the privilege of lending money to that industry. What? We've got the best jobs in the world. You know that? Yeah. You know, we really do. And that's, that's one thing I want to reiterate. Aaron just said privilege. It is a privilege for us to work with agriculture. It's, that's one thing even going this job from day one, you, you think it's, it's a privilege I get to walk on your yeah. farm and hopefully help you take your operation to that next level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Aaron, we're talking about uh, through the ag business side and even at the branch level you were at. So you've, from the beginning of your career, you've seen a lot of different operations, big, small. What are some similarities and differences that you kind of see with this, like a, I'd say a small operation versus a large multi-generation family operation? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, it's one, you know, certainly worthy of discussion. I'm, I may go down a different route on this one and just simply say, I, I, from my experience, I think the number one correlation between profitability on farms is not size. Mm. In fact, I'm going to propose the idea that profitability is not really a function of size. Profitability is normally the result of doing something, uh, doing something well. 
Now, size certainly has some advantages and can bring with it economies of scale, but size does not equal profit and size does not guarantee success. Uh, those that have been around me for a while know that I, I, I've often said over the years that bigger is not better. Mm-hmm. Better is better. Mm. Better is better. A good strategy that I've seen is that when you focus on becoming better before getting bigger and, and when you become really good at what you do, growth then tends to be the natural output. Size can be your friend, but if you're not ready for it, size can be your biggest foe. Yes. I, yeah. I, I remember yeah. uh, this is year one, year two of my career. One of my one of my mentors that we were working on a lot of dairy loans uh, back in the day. An old mentor uh, once said, he said, Aaron, if I'm losing a nickel for every cow I have in the barn, the more cows I have, the more nickels I'm going to lose. It's really that simple. Harvest is right around the corner. It's time to start thinking about grain inventory loans to allow you to access capital needed to purchase inputs and reduce taxable income without having to sell your grain before year end. Contact your local Ag Credit office for more information. I want to camp out on that that size um, that size thought that uh, bigger is not always better. Better is better. And my experience from my side of the desk I've seen over the years is that when an operation becomes better at something, they usually growth happens. Right. Mm-hmm. Growth is growth is the natural output of that. It, it, here's the practical t- concept and all that. Running a successful business does not mean you have to run a big business. Okay. Some of the most profitable businesses that I work with, as you define by financial metrics, return on equity. Uh, some of those profitable businesses I've worked with have actually been on the smaller end scale of the spectrum. So, you know, number one correlation between profitability and farms is not size. I am going to propose the number one correlation is management. Mm. Okay. Oftentimes, I like to use the word stewardship. I think that fits mm-hmm. uh, yeah. really well. And I tell you why. Whoever's whoever's faithful with little will be faithful with much. Okay. And if you're a successful manager in a small operation and you can lead well, you're probably going to be a, a good manager at a larger operation. The people that learn to do the ordinary thing extraordinarily well tend to have pretty bright futures. I mean, so, so think about that, right? Like, like, why does Major League Baseball have spring training, right? These are the professionals. They, they are the utter, utter professionals, best of the best that are out there in that field. Right. Mm-hmm. And they still go back every year and do batting practice. They do the same thing that we did as as kids learning the sport from day one. First thing you did, batting practice. Coach puts you in there. Okay, here's how you hit the ball. Here's mm-hmm. what you got to do. Right. Major League Baseball players every year still practice the basics. NFL has preseason camp. Why? Because they get back to, to the, the fundamental the blocking. Fun, refining them fundamentals. Yep. Yeah. Right. Same thing that I was taught. They went football practice, practice the fundamentals, and and the professionals are no different, right? So it's just a concept that that never grows old. Keep focusing on doing the right thing, and l- let the results happen. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That is that is great. So I, I guess I want <clears throat> to when you say stewardship and management. 
can you kind of break that yeah. down? I guess, you know, in my mind, I think of, you know, you're, you know, you're a farming operation, you're a producer, your job is to produce a crop. Is, is there, it seems like the, the successful farming operations I've witnessed are ones that are, are number one, great at, great at that. They're great at producing a crop. They're great at putting seed to the ground, uh, and getting a great yield out of it. And then there's the management side of it, right? There's the paperwork side of it. Yeah. There's the, the metrics side of it. And, and it seems like the people that do well are the ones that know how to farm, but also, like you said, know how to manage, know how to do, how to, how to do the, yeah. how to do accounting, how to, yeah. you know, how to work the numbers, yeah. you know. I, I think it, it just helps set the proper view primarily in terms of ownership and also sustainability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, like uh, you can be an owner and uh, a manager. You could be the CEO of the farming operation and you could go about your business in that capacity. You can also be one of the key employees in the organization that would s still take the, what I call it, the owner mindset. Mm. All right. Like I, I'm going to make a decision that's best. That makes, that makes the most sense. Like it's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. whether I own it or somebody else owns it. Yeah. I want to be a good steward of somebody else's resources, right? And and it's that owner mentality that that when that's prevalent throughout the entire organization, uh, great things are going to happen. Mm -hmm. So yeah, management, yeah. stewardship, ownership, they're they're similar, but they're not all alike. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I and I, I I just I like the word stewardship. I think it applies. Mm -hmm. And surrounding yourself with the people that have that same mindset and. The same goals as you, I think, is a big thing. And, you know, today's operations where, you know, it is not just a, a farmer and his wife now. I mean, there's there's quite a few operations. We have multiple employees that uh, you, you hope you get to, the people that have the same mindset and goals you do or else then I could see that being a just a, a battle to end to go nowhere yeah. looking at that. Yeah. Really, guys, in my mind, success is not about how much you have. Or how little you have. To me, success is defined by what are you doing with what you got? What do you do with what you have? Yeah. How are you using it? How, and how are you growing it? You know, with the gifts, the talents, the resources that have been given to you. To me, Phil, that's good stewardship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I hope all the listeners out there, if you're driving in the truck, don't be jotting notes down, but get in our show notes later. <laughs> this is this is stuff that doesn't apply just to farm operations. This applies to everything so just good advice here for you guys farm business personal it, it all it all mashes together yep. you know yep. It's, yep. It's how we're wired so and i think i guess yeah i, I don't know if you can speak to characteristics uh, of kind of a, a successful farmer and i just love the fact that you've you've been outside of the state of ohio you've seen different you know great farming to dairy to to different unique things out in, in new york and then you've come back and just the size and complexity of what you've seen what is a unique or not unique what is a a similar characteristic you see across the spectrum uh, of how someone is successful like yeah. practically like yeah. how, how's that executed oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a great question yeah. and uh Again, it's one of these things that over time you just realize that, you know, as lenders, we have a very unique position within a marketplace where we get to work with, like I said, the best this world has to offer, American farmer. And we're also blessed to work with a lot of different farm families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's a unique trait of this position. Right. And and, and over time and over time. Over time, as you work with more and more families, you learn what can work for them, and you can learn that that same thing that worked for them 
is not working over here with this other family, right? So those of us that wrestle with that, right? Think about that. You know, God gave us a brain to use so that we can think through strategically and, and think big, right? And, and as you peel that onion back a little bit and start to realize there's, there's a few things that kind of come to the top. Mm-hmm. All right. I've got a list here. I'm, I'm going to call it five traits or five attributes of a successful farmer. Okay. And these are things okay. that over my, over, over, over my experience are these, these are consistent traits that have risen to the top that, that I have found that, that are consistent from operation to operation. Big or small, successful farmers tend to have these five traits. Okay. Now, I, I also want to throw out a disclaimer on this too, that, that it's not my desire uh, to come at this from the perspective of somebody that has it all figured out and that I'm an expert on this topic uh, because I don't, all right? In fact, it's quite the opposite. I've spent my entire career seeking out wisdom from others <laughs> that are experts <laughs> in this field. And then just simply watch what they do, mm -hmm. guys. Talk is cheap. Actions matter. And when you stop listening to what people say and you just start watching what successful people do, you're going to end up learning something. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, you know, uh, some of these thoughts, my list of five, are going to be what I call descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay. okay. So meaning that you know, s some of these thoughts, some of these comments on this topic are what I have found to be effective in the marketplace, uh, but they're not the only way. And uh, they're not the only traits of a successful farmer. It's certainly not an exhaustive list. They're just simply some or a few of many traits. Uh, and they may not all work the same in different situations. So like, you know, for example, somebody may come up to me and say, Aaron, I adamantly disagree with your thoughts on fill in the blank. All right. And my response to that is great. Tell me what, what are you doing? How's it working for you? Mm -hmm. How's that, how's that apply in your operation? I help me understand. Great. I, you know, yeah. For purposes of this discussion, we'll talk about successful farming in the sense of financial metrics and financial performance. Okay. Okay. Perfect. I also understand that success isn't always about making money. And in the broader sense, success to me is leaving the wood pile higher than I found it. Right? It's giving back more than you consume. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, one of the ways that we do this is by using the gifts, the talents, resources we've been given and using them to grow and multiply. But again, for purposes of this discussion, we're just going to focus primarily on the measuring stick of uh, financial performance, and that almost always starts with profit. So uh, number one trait of successful farmers. Successful farmers have what I call high business acumen. All right. Great businesses, they have strong head knowledge. Dr. Dave Cole likes to call this the sixth C of credit. Mm -hmm. mm. Cranium. Mm. Right. What I see successful farmers doing is they usually spend most of their time in three primary areas. How to lower costs, how to grow at optimum, optimum capacity, and how to position for the future. So the first area, how to lower cost. I think it's really important to realize that we as, as producers of an ag commodity, we are so different than other businesses in this country, primarily in the sense that we all grow the same product. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so Matt, a, a bushel of yellow two corn that I grow on my family farm really isn't a whole lot different than a bushel grown on your farm. Right. Right. What I found is that I, you know, generally speaking, what I sell that bushel for really isn't that much different than what you're able to sell mm -hmm. yours for. But what I have found is that my bushel of corn may have, may have cost me a lot more to grow than perhaps it would have cost you to grow yours. Mm -hmm. 
And that's one of the biggest differences that we see from farm to farm. And that is an interesting way to look at it. We are, like you said, a very unique industry that we all produce the same product and sell it for the exact same price. So, you know, it's hard to say what's going to stand stand you apart from the right. neighbor down the road that's growing the exact same thing and you're hauling to the same market. Yeah. Yeah, there's the flip side of that coin also is in in recent years, relatively recent years, there's been more more demand, more effort, more focus on traceability, mm-hmm. um, you know, non-GMO, uh, organic. You know, the, 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 those are all very active uh, parts of our ag industry that that I would say don't fit that bucket. They they, they right. inherently carry a premium value, mm-hmm. right? But if we talk. I'm going to go way back to college days when they talk about the definition of a commodity. Okay. Purest definition, Matt, is your commodity is the same as my commodity is the same as Phil's. Like it's all the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what happens with your truckload of yellow number two corn? You dump in the pit. I pull behind you. I dump mine in the pit. And you know what? It all goes the same it place. It all, yes. Yeah. That, that's, that's what happens. So successful farmers have a crystal clear understanding that in commodity agriculture, Lowest cost producer wins. Mm-hmm. Always has, always will. Mm-hmm. Okay. And successful operations are quick to identify the areas that increase their cost production. And they're constantly looking for opportunities to lower the per unit cost mm-hmm. or to improve their asset utilization. Right. I often say money constantly swirls around a business just looking for a place to get lost. <laughs> <laughs> Very easy, very easy to allow expenses to creep up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some some traits of successful farmers, they're pit bulls when it comes to tracking expenses and allowing those dollars, allowing those dollars to leave the farm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, before farmers just go out, uh, you know, break out the yardstick and they start whacking their input suppliers down on price. <laughs> okay. Bef- before everybody goes and goes and does that, can we can we talk about the elephant in the room when it comes to cost control? That big, shiny, new elephant, the one that has the, the new coat of paint on it, <laughs> really nice to look at, mm-hmm. right? Equipment. Yep. Yeah. Right. I heard a comment years ago, farming builds character, new equipment builds egos. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not, I, but I, and, I, and I know I'm kind of going from preaching to meddling here when I say that. <laughs> yeah. All right. There's also... Uh, I've heard it said, uh, I think Dave Cole talks about this, uh, the little known scientific fact about farmers that all farmers are born with three chips in their brain when they're at birth. Uh, Thou shalt not pay income tax. Thou shalt buy more equipment than what is necessary. (laughs) And thou shalt buy as much land as possible. It sounds about right. (laughs) Um, And and these, these chips, they have a great influence on our thinking the way that we run the businesses. And I I've tried over the years to rewire that program, but it really is a fruitless exercise. So you, you learn to adjust and work with it. You know, equipment, I, I digress, but equipment, it, it is the number one influencer of cost on a mm-hmm. grain farm. And it's the one cost that, that we can see uh, very greatly from, farm to, from one farm to the next. So when it comes to equipment, the thought I have is that if you're going to have more than what is necessary, just make sure you know what it's costing you. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's okay for a business to have a loss leader. It's not okay to not know that you have a loss leader. Right. That's not okay. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So once you identify that cost, then it becomes pretty clear. You know, can you afford it? And assuming so, are you okay carrying that higher cost? Mm-hmm. And and yes is an acceptable answer to yeah. that question. Yeah. One of my travels years ago, I was going down the interstate and I passed this massive boat. I don't know how it was. It was bigger than what it looked like to be on the road. Beautiful boat. I passed it. And at the very last end, I glanced over. And you know how all boats have a name mm-hmm. on yeah. the back of it? Yeah. This big, huge, beautiful, massive boat. The name of it was Negative Equity. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm like, yeah, that guy gets it. He yeah. totally understands. And they've got the proper view of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was more than a chuckle. It was like, oh, okay, yeah. there's a guy That's, or a gal yeah. that they get it. Yeah. Right. I, I, and I think maybe I just come off a farm visit where I was having this conversation with the farm. I, mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking, like, I would love for our customers to have that proper view. Yeah. Right. right. I was uh, listening to a Dave Ramsey podcast the other day, and, um, and Matt and I have talked about this before. And he was talking about, and he, Dave talks a lot. He's a personal finance guy. Yeah. Right. Uh, and he was talking about, you know, uh, people buying the once in life. And, you know, one of those is a boat mm-hmm. um, or uh, a camper or something like that. He's like, those, those type of things, if you were in a financial position where you can go take the money that you're going to pay for that item, let's say it's a boat. He said, if you, if you are okay with stacking that money in your driveway and lighting it on fire, then you can go buy a boat. Yeah, He's yeah. like, if, if you, and you, you are still financially okay after you burn that money, then you can yeah. still buy that boat. Yeah. But he's like, if you cannot visualize lighting a match to that cash that you're going to spend on that boat, <laughs> then you probably yeah. shouldn't buy the boat. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? And I was like, that is a phenomenal way to say that. I, yeah. I, I, I like to come at the extreme. I know I'm, I'm working yeah. extremes here, but I like to come at from that perspective on the topic of costs. Yeah. Because I just think it's, it's, um, it's a counterpoint that uh, perhaps doesn't get talked about enough within our industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, a farm tractor is the same as a boat. I, I, I'm not saying that at all, yeah. but yeah. the concept is just healthy. It's yeah. a healthy concept yes. to think mm-hmm. of it that way. I, I've said over the years, it's, it's as a, as a, as a lender, it's my job to show you that cost. It's your job to defend it. Yes. Okay. And, and again, I'm meddling a little bit on this, but I have found farmers go to the ends of the world to justify <laughs> some of these costs. And I, 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 I get it. I, I, when I say farmer, I'm also, you know, I, I have both a banker hat and a farmer hat mm-hmm. myself. So I, right. I, 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 I do eat my own cooking when it comes to stuff. Right. But, but here, here's a key concept, guys. Successful farmers understand that equipment is not an investment. All right. It's a cost of doing business. And the ultimate goal is to lower that cost of utilizing that equipment as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I know there's probably some folks out there, and because I've had this conversation many times, they, they'll argue, but what, hey, what about those times when equipment goes up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, you know, right. Talk about that 1486 International that my grandpa taught me how to plow, you know. That 1486 is worth a lot more, you know, now then, than it was back then. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that, if you look at return on investment, that's a heck of a return on investment yeah. there. So, but here's here's the, uh, I think there's been maybe two times in my farming career, I think I got this right, two times where we saw an inverse in the equipment market where not 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 the old, old stuff, but mm-hmm. the stuff that's, you know, used, not super old, started getting really hot mm-hmm. price, mm-hmm. right? I think it's happened twice in my career. I think it's maybe happened three times in my dad's career. Could be wrong on that. All right. 
But here's the thing. So suppose that was the case and you had that Case IH-7120 you know, tractor and it went up in value. Mm-hmm. And, and the argument is, well, no, it's an investment. It, here's my question. Okay. Here's my statement. Okay. I suppose if you sold it, you, you would have had a realized gain. I, I, right. I, I get that. My question is, but what did you do with the money? You probably took the money and upgraded to mm-hmm. a new tractor. Mm-hmm. That cost a lot more. Right. Investments are, are in my in my mind, investments are typically held for 40, 50 years. And I'm just I, I just I, I struggle with the concept that something that can rust is considered an investment. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's, it, again, successful farmers look at the mindset of equipment not being an investment, but it's a cost. It's a cost of doing business. It's a cost. Just a fixed cost. If you're going to be in the business of farming, you got to have it. Yep. It's a cost it's of a doing tool. business. Yeah. Yep. The proper view. Okay. Knowing that, how do we lower it? There, there, there are actually some different strategies for lowering the costs. If you talk about equipment, um, you know, because some some farm businesses will they'll pay for that cost through depreciation. Some out there will pay it through repairs. You know, mm-hmm. run a little bit older stuff, but they yep. got higher cost of repairs, and, and some just pay it with uh, rent or lease expense. But everybody pays it in some form or fashion, and everybody has a cost of using the equipment. So, again, goal is to lower the cost as much as possible because over time. Lowest cost producer wins. Now, I am going to switch gears a bit and talk about the flip side of that coin of, of low cost. And the flip side of that, of that coin of low cost is called value. The goal isn't always to beat down your suppliers on price, kind of like that whack-a-mole game. Mm-hmm. You know? Because I'll tell you why. Because it's pretty hard to pay bottom dollar and expect top-shelf advice. Right. Or top-shelf service. Okay? So... Successful farmers, trait number one, we talk about business acumen and, and head knowledge. Successful farmers understand strong value when they see it, and they're willing to pursue it rather than chasing that very last dollar of savings. So this this then is a challenge out to all the suppliers, right? So if you're charging a premium for your product, your service, then you best be bringing premium value. And that's not defined by you, but it's defined uh, but the value that you are you are able to, to articulate to your customer, and it's got to be the value that they see in your product or service. Sometimes we'll see a low-cost producer choose to pay a huge premium for a product or a service or to hire a person, but the value that they get from that product, that service, or that person, it far surpasses the price they pay. Okay. Right. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. Let me give you an example. We've seen this happen in different industries. Automation is a great example. Automation can have a very large upfront um, ticket price, can have a huge upfront cost. But the long-term savings of automation are literally priceless, especially in this period of high inflation and the mm-hmm. tight labor supply. The value of automation, getting in there and doing its thing, the value is priceless. You know, nobody really wants to pay full price without getting value. But farmers are really good about sniffing that out, as, as they should be. But when we stumble across a product or service or people of great value, we have got to fight hard to keep them part of our business. Value is key over the long haul, and successful farm operations realizes. I mentioned earlier, successful farmers with this high business acumen or strong head knowledge spend most of their time in the three areas. Number one, lowering the cost. 
and we kind of beat that dead horse enough here. <laughs> um, second, second area is how to grow at optimum capacity or, or how to become more efficient. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of uh, Danny Kleinfelder's 5% rule. And for those of you that don't know Danny, he's, he is widely regarded as a, just a trailblazer in the ag economic space and a true visionary of American agriculture. He founded the TPAP program uh, 30 years ago as a training program for some of the best and brightest minds in agriculture. And then he went and followed that up by leading the Apex Association for many years. So, you know, Danny's been a great mentor and he is truly a wealth of knowledge, but, but one of the, one of the Danny-isms that he said over the years, he calls it his 5% rule. And it's simply this, a 5% increase in production, a 5% decrease in costs, and a 5% increase in price can increase your bottom line by over a hundred percent. And it's, it's really this idea of aggregation of marginal returns. We've, we've talked about that internally here with, with ad credit, mm-hmm. uh, small improvements made within a business done consistently over time add up to very big gains. Oh yeah. And, and it doesn't take much. This is, I, we've, we have seen this on our side of the desk. It does not take much to go from average to above average or to go from above average to a leader of the pack. Mm -hmm. And, and Danny's concept is, uh, it's just this, you know, a 1% improvement compounded 15 times over 1%, 15 different times, it'll double your net income. Oh yeah. You know, a lot of people out there are looking for the big wins and, and that's, it's good to, it's good to spend some time there, but true success, sustainable success. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, requires uh, a great focus on the small wins. We call this majoring in the minors, you know, strong attention to detail. And, and implementing this 5% rule in your operation is a great way to become more efficient, have better asset utilization, and it allows you to grow at optimum capacity. So uh, the third area that I, men- that I mentioned, how to position the farm for the future. Successful farmers uh, tend to be opportunistic, all right? I like, I like the visual. I call it being the watchman on the wall, right? A, a first class noticer. It's, it's constantly having your eyes on the horizon and looking for opportunities as they come up before it becomes obvious to the average producer. Mm-hmm. Maybe another way to put that is uh, heads up farming versus heads down farming. Okay. Sometimes we all need to have our head down, making sure that everything's getting done, right? And oftentimes you need to be running with your head up, looking for those opportunities that will help position your business for the future. Spend a lot of time on this number one trait, business acumen, strong head knowledge, because I, I think it's pretty important. But. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So second trait of a successful farmer, successful farmers understand the importance of working capital. And, they're six, and successful farmers are disciplined in building it, and they're very disciplined in how they deploy it and how they use that. And here's the here's thing, guys, about discipline. And discipline is something that none of us like. We don't like it. We don't enjoy it. The awesome part about discipline is that we all love the result of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. We all love the result of it. All right. So successful farmers understand the importance of working capital. What Working capital, what, what is working capital? We're talking the top half of the balance sheet, mm-hmm. right? So think about your balance sheet. Think about top half, top left hand side is your inventory, your receivables, your prepaid expenses, your cash, right? Top right-hand side 
uh, you take the, the, the total of your, of your top left and then subtract it off of the top right. Your top right would be your payables, your accrued expenses, operating loan balance. Yep. And that difference is what we, as lenders, call working capital. Dave Cole, in one of his presentations years ago, said that cash is no longer king. It's the queen on the chessboard. Why? Because working capital can both attack and it can block. It can do both. It can block by subsidizing a bad decision within the business. Mm -hmm. But it can also attack by capitalizing on great timing and opportunity. I will say this. The longer that I sit on this side of the desk in this profession, the more convicted and convinced that I become in my view of building larger and larger levels of working capital. And I'll tell you why, because usually when you deploy and use up most of your working capital, Mr. Murphy comes knocking on your door. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And it's usually really bad timing. <laughs> and I'll tell you this much too. If, if you've ever lost an opportunity because you weren't prepared for it or you hadn't maintained a strong enough liquidity position to be ready for it, that moment is going to burn the discipline back into you. It'll oh, burn yeah. it back into you. I often say that working capital is just like Jello. There's always room for more. Some of the young, younger a, artists might need to, need to do yeah, a little that's, research that's, on that joke. That's yeah. a good quote we're going to put out. For yeah, that. that's phenomenal. <laughs> so first trait of a success, successful farmer, strong business acumen. Second trait is uh, understanding the value of working capital. And then uh, third trait is uh, successful farmers understand the difference between good debt and bad debt. And if I could take that a step further, they know the difference between too much debt and too little debt. Okay. So let's, let's unpack that a bit, right? Good debt versus bad debt. There's two reasons to borrow money and really only two reasons to ever borrow money is to build assets or to fund losses. Okay. Mm -hmm. So borrowing money to build assets, the question you ask yourself, are you buying an investment asset or are you buying a cost of doing business asset? Okay. And again, I go back to our talk on investments and investment assets in, in my book are ones that either produce income, they save on a per unit expense, mm -hmm. or they regularly go up in value after you buy it. The best, at, the best investments do a combination of those. Oh, yeah. Buying an investment asset and borrowing against it tends to be good, uh, good debt mm -hmm. in my book. I like that kind of debt, personally, professionally, uh, with my customers. I, that's, that's good debt yep. in my book. Buying investment assets. Buying a cost of doing business asset, like we mentioned, it, it, it's a necessary evil. If you're going to be in the, in the business of farming, there's certain assets that are just a cost of doing business and you've got to have them. Right. Right. So buying a cost of doing business asset, you need to be careful about loading up on too many of them. Uh, because it, it may run the risk of bumping into the high cost producer category. So, you know, be intentional about those types of assets. Be careful about the amount of debt that you borrow out against them. Uh, personally, I really like the business strategy of uh, once you've built this, you know, very large working capital position, um, use the excess then to pay down the debts that you owe on the cost of doing business assets. Pay them off ahead of schedule. Mm -hmm. Right. And then once those debts are paid off, then you work equally hard at that time of replenishment to to replace them with your own capital and not lender capital. Right. Right. It, it's that snowball approach, right? 
and it takes time. But once you get into that rhythm, it's one of the most sustainable ways to manage a business, in my opinion. And it's really, it's, it's a fun way to manage a business. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, it's, speaking on this topic of buying assets, you know, great businesses are not only disciplined in how they spend the money, they're also disciplined in how they earn it. And do they want to spend money on this project or do they need to spend money on this project? I've often said, who spends more money, a drunken sailor or a sober farmer? <laughs> right? And over the years, my answer used to be, I don't know. And even though I've never met a drunken sailor, I'm pretty sure I'm going to put my money on that sober farmer. Yep. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, you know, I encourage, I encourage our farmers to take a disciplined approach. Uh, a fool and his money are easily parted. So, you know, be wise in that approach. You know, profits can stay in the business to build working capital. They can be used for CapEx. Profits can pay down debt. They can be distributed out over on owner draws, family living. There's a lot of different things you can do with profits. Mm -hmm. They can also be used to load up on lazy assets. So, you know, uh, great businesses, they're disciplined with the capital spending and how they allocate the profits. So, again, two reasons to to borrow money, build assets. Second reason to borrow money is to fund losses. Yep. And obviously, that's not a good reason to borrow, but it happens. It seems self-explanatory, but you know, sometimes people borrow thinking that they are building assets, but in reality, it's just masking a weakness by funding a prior year's loss. Oh, yeah. So, you know, having having clarity on the purpose of borrowing and this is very mm-hmm. important. And again, it points to the, the value in having a strong working capital mm-hmm. position. Talk about, in addition to understanding you know, good debt versus bad debt. Successful farmers also understand the difference between too much debt and too little debt. So the example I, I like to use is a crowbar, right? In, in the lending world, we, we also use the word leverage, mm-hmm. right? My grandpa Stoller would always say, you got to have the right tool for the right job. Got to have the right tool for the right job. He said that so many times I got sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> Oftentimes a crowbar is that right tool, Right. And, and debt can be an excellent tool to lift and move your business. But have you ever used a crowbar that was too small? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't work. No. Didn't get the job done, left you frustrated. Have you ever used a crowbar that was too big? Oh, yeah. You know, it's the same thing. Didn't work. It's too bulky. You got frustrated or worse yet, you end up dropping it because it was too heavy. Debt leverage is like that crowbar. Too little doesn't get the job done, too much, and it's just going to weigh down the business, and you can't grow and thrive because of it. I also kind of feel the need to address this debt-free mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I will say there's absolutely situations out there where it makes a whole lot of sense to be debt-free in a business. Typically, this, this could maybe be in a situation where there's a mature business and there's no next generation coming back to take right. over the business. Right? It just it makes sense to get the debts paid off and give you more flexibility and more options, right? They say the best stories are the true stories. I want to tell you a story about when my theology of debt-free got completely turned upside down. We got to get in the way back machine, way back to 2003, okay? Way back. (laughs) Yeah, 20 years ago, okay? I I remember this like it happened yesterday. 2003, our, our, our lending team, our branch office, we went out and to visit one of our dairy farmers, uh, up in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And this dairy farmer had just a, a, just a great reputation within our company as, as just an operation that just knew how to dairy farm, right? 
made lots of money over many, many years, and they just know how to milk cows and make it work. And, and I would, I would consider this dairy farmer as having these attributes, right? right. Of having these traits of a successful farmer. Mm-hmm. And we knew it before we stepped foot on his farm. You know, we went out there as, as uh, just to kind of learn a little bit more. And I remember somebody on my team asked him the question. They asked him when he thought he'd have all of his loans paid off, you know, because he really seemed dialed into this business and was mm-hmm. just doing really well. And I'll tell you, the look on his face was utter surprise. And, and his response, very stoic, he says, I don't have any plans for this farm to ever be debt-free. And I'll tell you, that comment rocked me. Like, absolutely rocked me. You know, and, and, and here's why. I think that comment coming from somebody who, who I knew, we knew, understood how to, how to run a successful business, knew how to make money farming. You know, if that comment had come from maybe, you know, somebody else that, we all knew just loved to buy new stuff all the time. You know, maybe that meant, would have meant something differently. But but this guy, he knew exactly how to run a profitable dairy business at full tilt, mm-hmm. right? And that comment rocked me because I just kept thinking at that stage of my life, like, oh, it's, you know, debt-free is the way to go. You know, just right. work, work, get the stuff paid off. Mm-hmm. Then he went on to explain it. And this, this is totally agree. He said he always tried to manage his business over the years being somewhere between 50% equity position and 80% equity position. Okay. He said anything less than 50% made him feel uncomfortable. And here's why he said, he said, I never want the bank to have more of their money in my business than what I do. Right. Mm. So he, so he always mm. wanted to stay above 50% equity. He said, anytime I get above 80%, he said, I have a real hard time looking myself in the mirror and answering the question, am I doing everything I possibly can to grow this business in a sustainable way that preserves it for my family and future generations. And at over 80% equity, he, he didn't have a clear conscience answering that question. And right. because he knew, he knew he had been given the gifts, the talents, the resources to grow a business. And he knew the resources to expand the business and, and, and thus needing debt to do it. He knew that it was at his disposal. He could do it. Mm-hmm. And choosing not to made him feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Didn't feel like he was using his gifts and talents in the way that he could. So, I, I am going to challenge the thinking a bit on uh, being debt-free is this be-all, end-all, holy grail of farming that we all should aspire to because it's not, right? You can't save your way into prosperity as fast as you can grow your way into it. And I think that dairy farmer from 2003 is a pretty good example of oh, that. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really it's, – it's, it's just the mathematics of comparing your – your ROE to the cost of borrowing money. And I often say, if you choose to fight math, you're going to lose. <laughs> right? I, I would say some of the wealthiest farmers that I know are the ones that borrowed the most amount of money. Right. I hear this quote today when I go out and do my farm visits. They say, Aaron, he said, my dad always said, it's not about how much money you have in the bank. It's about how much you can get out of the bank. And, it's important to know that these borrowers did it strategically, appropriately, and they loaded up on the really good assets. Right. The really good ones, mm. not the bad ones. Conversely, I, I, I'll say it. Some of the poorest farmers that I know that I've worked with are the ones that never borrowed any money or rarely borrowed money mm. because they didn't want to. And, and dare I say, they felt a little too proud to. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I don't say that critically. Interesting. I say that as, uh, just as an observation. So, yep. you know, a final comment on this, you know, 
good debt, bad debt, too much, too little debt. Final comment I'll say is, you know, you know being debt free is a good and honorable goal, and especially on the personal side. Mm-hmm. But borrowing money in the appropriate way and the appropriate amount has been a great way to grow a business. So I think the, the important thing from your story, you just told the guy, the dairy farmer is that, uh, he knew his equity position, right? It, I think it's, it's, it's knowing where you're at. Right. And, and knowing those numbers, no, I he think, didn't know it. He was crystal clear. Crystal, right. Exactly. On what it was. Exactly. And there's a difference where it's, yes. You know, he's like, I, I you know, he, he knew that sweet spot and, and he kind of mm-hmm. knows, you know, knowing it and having the information and using it as a tool. Um, like your grandpa said, having that tool of, of knowing that your metrics is, is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So first trait, you know, having strong business acumen, second trait, successful farmers have a uh, strong working capital understanding. And the third trait, knowing the difference between good debt, bad debt, mm-hmm. too much, too little. A fourth trait that I've got, successful farmers are industry experts. So if, if strong business acumen is the head knowledge, then this tends to be the heart of the business. Okay. You know, these are the farmers that have a real passion for the industry. They know it inside and out. They know the key players. They tend to be the ones that are most vocal about the industry. Mm-hmm. They're the leaders. They represent the industry well. They push for support and sustainability. They're out advocate, advocating with elected officials, engaging with others in the industry, industry organizations. They truly are leading the industry as experts. So, And then the fifth and final trait of successful farmers is they reinvest back into themselves. They continue to, to hone their craft. They're always looking to get better. They'll, they'll prior, prioritize training and continuing education. Something that I've seen happen, you know, recently, say in the last 10 years or so is peer groups uh, okay. that have come up within agriculture. I can't say enough good things about peer groups. The value is there. Um, and, you know, successful farmers will surround themselves with others that are in a similar capacity or similar industry. It, you know, it puts the old proverb into uh, action that iron sharpens iron. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and uh, just like we all know, peers have a great way of pointing out your blind spots. Right. And, oh, yeah. and, and, and you know what? And their opinions matter because they're down in the trenches fighting the same battles mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that we are. Yeah. Reinvesting back in themselves, back in the operation. Peer groups a great way to do it. Benchmarking is another great way. It's a fabulous way. I love benchmarking. And and really, in, in, in my view, benchmarking is a tool that allows us to sharpen our strengths and improve our weaknesses. And I say that because it's, it's, it's very rare. It's pretty unusual for a weakness to just magically turn into a strength. Mm-hmm. It's pretty rare. But if you can start with a weakness and then improve it along the curve, going from poor to just even below average, that improvement along the curve has a huge impact. goes back to Danny's 5% rule, right? Aggregation of marginal gains, mm-hmm. small wins, big impact. My experience also been with benchmarking is that it has a way of, of humbling some of us. You know, it, it, it has a way of showing producers who, who think or feel that they're really good in one area only find out that their peers are just crushing them in that area and they're doing a much better job, right? And and ironically, I've seen the exact opposite happen too. You know, I've, I've worked with farmers who are just convinced that they're horrible in this certain area, this certain category, mm-hmm. only to find out that they're leading the pack in the entire category. Mm-hmm. 
this this type of feedback, this type of information, uh, gives them confirmation to keep at it. You know, I, I say keep doing what you think is a horrible job because it's working. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> the, the data backs it up. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? So you know this type of mission, this type of information, this type of feedback, it's it's just invaluable, and it establishes the roadmap how to improve over time, and successful farmers will reinvest back into themselves. I think the peer groups is something uh, I find interesting too, Aaron. And it's one thing we've discussed in you know, our local farm bureau meetings where, to a point, it feels like we've lost some of that in agriculture. One, I think, because of social media and just technology. How many times are you not stopping along the road and talking to the neighbor anymore or getting together Saturday mornings for breakfast at the coffee shop? The rest, it, it, we are a lot fat, more fast paced lifestyle, but it is, you know, that, that peer group thing is something that I feel we really need to get back yeah. to as an industry. Just, yeah. you know, two attributes within a peer group that are must have non negotiables there's got to be trust and there's got to be respect. Mm hmm. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna step out into the deep, step out into the uncomfortable, you got to do it with people that you, that you respect, right? And that, that that you trust. Yeah, you know. And some of the best feedback is when people tell you stuff that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Exactly. Right. Yep. 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 Well, Aaron, we want to thank you today for being part of our uh, podcast with us today. And you know, as I as uh, we were talking our commercial break, uh, you know, I got some questions down. I think we might uh, be ready for a round two come uh, next season. So, so be prepared for that. But I want to thank all of our listeners again and uh, be sure uh, anything we talked about today will be in our show notes. Be sure to uh, tell your friends, listen to us, all your listening platforms for Ag Credit Set It and anything else uh, information wise. Be sure to look us up on agcredit.net or contact your local branch. Phil, I think uh, that wraps her up for today. So, I want to thank everybody and we'll catch you next time on Ag Credit Set It. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ag Credit Said It. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you are there, leave us a review to help others find the show. Let's talk ag in between episodes. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag Credit. For more tips and resources, visit agcredit.net. <laughs>